This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. King Jesus, our prayer is simple this morning. We pray that you would speak to us, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love surprises and those who hate them. I am one of those who don't particularly like surprises, and it's not even close. You can just ask my wife something like, a surprise birthday party is pretty close to my worst nightmare. And I think my dislike for surprises is why today's gospel reading has always haunted me. I don't know if there are passages in the Bible uh, that you have that you can think of that just sort of loom in the back of your mind that haunt you, that keep you up at night. For me, it's Matthew 25. One of the reasons is that it's just so full of surprises. Who's welcomed in? Who's cast out? And why? Passages like these unsaddle our categories, our sense of assurance that we will be saved. As I was preparing for this sermon, I read an article on this passage, and it said something like this. If you're a child of God, you have no reason to fear the final judgment. And then he said, there are, of course, people in the church for whom this day won't go very well. If you're a sheep, you'll be fine, but if you're a goat, not so much. Not particularly comforting, right? Which one am I? How do I know? Well, I think it's important to say up front that the point of this passage isn't to trigger what writer Susanna Black calls scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is like a religious form of OCD. The judgment scene is not meant to make us anxiously obsess over whether we're going to make the cut. The point is not to leave us guessing about whether we will be welcomed into the kingdom. The point is to help us to live as citizens of that kingdom right now, to show us what really matters. And so as we wrap up our sermon series on hospitality, on this Christ the King Sunday, the big question that I want to answer with this sermon is this. What does Christ the King's judgment of every single person in human history have to do with hospitality? And perhaps surprisingly, the answer is everything. So to help us to see just how central hospitality is to the kingdom of God, the first thing I want to do is orient us to the passage so we have a sense of what's going on. Second, I want to allow this passage to disorient us so that it can ultimately reorient us. I want to allow the passage to shake us up a little bit so that it can set us on the right path. So first, I want to say a few things to orient us to what's going on in this passage. One of the few chapters leading up to this chapter in Matthew's gospel, Jesus hits on a few themes again and again. He talks about the nature of the kingdom, the need to be ready for the king's sudden arrival, and he talks an awful lot about integrity about having our insides, or our outsides rather, match our insides, how our life is reflecting what we think and believe. And the final judgment, this scene, this vision, ties all of this together. 
In this vision, Jesus is drawing on the somewhat mysterious figure from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, where one, like the Son of Man, a heavenly human, comes to judge the nations and to rule over the world. And Jesus here is identifying himself as this Son of Man. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his throne and he will judge the whole human race as king. Jesus tells us that this king is also a shepherd, just as ancient shepherds would separate their sheep from their goats into separate pens at the end of every day. So the good shepherd will separate the unrighteous and the righteous at the end of human history. As it turns out, there really are two kinds of people in the world, and it's not those who love surprises and those who don't. It's pretty intense, this passage. I think there's a reason why the prophets called this day of judgment the great and the terrible day. The final judgment is a day of doom and a day of celebration. As Psalm 9 tells us, it's a day of doom because the ungodly will be destroyed and their names will be blotted out forever and ever. But it's also a day of celebration because the king will avenge the victims of violence. He will not forget the cry of the poor and the oppressed. This is why God's judgment really is ultimately good news. Our world is filled to overflowing with corruption and evil and abuse and injustice. And when God judges the world, it means he's finally going to fix the world. So that gives us a sense of what's happening in this. And I just want to say one more thing to orient us to the passage. I want to talk about where this passage lands in the Gospel of Matthew, sort of structurally. This is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples in his public ministry. After this teaching comes the passion. And so in a way, these are to be taken as Jesus' last words to his disciples. And last words are lasting words. These are meant to hit our ears a little different. Jesus is saying, remember this. What I'm saying in this scene is most important. And if we haven't already, we'll soon see that what Jesus says is most important is actually quite disorienting. It's full of surprises. You know, oddly enough, this passage makes me think of my daughter when she was a baby, which is kind of a strange thing to say. But for maybe the first six months of her life, Marilyn's eyes were just always so big, it looked like she was in a constant state of surprise, like she was always shocked about everything. A family friend referred to this cute phenomenon as surprise eyes. I think it's hard to read this passage without having surprise eyes. The vision is filled with surprising revelations about the final judgment, and it messes with our assumptions. It might even mess with our theology. Hopefully it will mess with how we live our lives. So I wanna quickly point out a few of the things that I find most surprising about this passage, and then I want us to really dwell on one of them. So I find it surprising that both the righteous and the accursed refer to Jesus as Lord. I find it surprising that Christ so identifies with the lost and the last and the least that to love someone in need is actually to love Jesus. And I find it surprising that both the righteous and the accursed 
are surprised by the verdict. Neither one of them is aware of just how much what they do or what they don't do really matters. But the thing that I find most surprising about this vision of the final judgment is the criteria that the king uses to judge every person. The basis of God's judgment, which seals our eternal destiny, is shocking. It's not what we would expect. You know, if somebody were to ask me two weeks ago, Father Kevin, what do you think matters most to God as he's deciding whether or not we will go to heaven or to hell? I probably would have said something like this. Well, do you love Jesus? Do you believe the gospel? Can you affirm the words of the Nicene Creed? But King Jesus' answer to this question is different. What is the final judgment based on? Well, this passage tells us acts of hospitality. Did you feed the hungry? Did you give water to the thirsty? Did you welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, help the sick, or visit the prisoner? Jesus isn't misspeaking here. He repeats this list four times in this short passage. Almost half of the content of Jesus' teaching is a repetition of these six things. Now, why would Jesus do that? In his final teaching to his disciples, why would he spend so much breath rehearsing these acts of hospitality? Well, I think the answer is he wants us to know just how much these things really matter. It's like Jesus is saying this, the final judgment is based on hospitality. 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 Let's see how it works. What is the final judgment based on? Hospitality. Surprising, isn't it? You see, hospitality is not just a nice thing. Hospitality is the ultimate measure of our faith. Now I want to pause here because I imagine some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. This sounds an awful lot like you're saying that we are earning our salvation, that we're saved by our works. But I thought we were saved by grace through faith. So I want to be super clear here. It's so important for us to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying, right? We're talking about the final judgment. The stakes are pretty high. Well, one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, a man by the name of Leon Morris, he clarifies things for us by drawing out the distinction between earning and evidence. The difference between earning and evidence. Morris says the final judgment is not about earning our salvation. It's about the evidence of our salvation. And he says this passage lines up with how the rest of the Bible talks about salvation. It can be summarized like this. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace and that we are judged by works. And to be super clear, works don't save us. Our works, our actions, our lives are the evidence of God's grace at work in us or our rejection of that grace. We are saved by grace and we are judged by works. This is taught consistently through the scriptures. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, can write in Romans 11 
that salvation is based on grace and not works. But this same Paul can also write in 2 Corinthians 5 that each of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for what we have done. We are saved by grace, by what Christ has done for us. And we are judged by works with what we've done with that gift of grace. And our passage holds these two things together. In verse 34, Jesus says, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. Inherit is a key word here, right? An inheritance is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can work for. We are saved by grace. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is clear that this judgment, this final judgment, is based on our actions. In verse 35, to the blessed, he says, inherit the kingdom. Another key word, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was sick and you took care of me. And in verse 42, again, to the accursed, he says, depart from me, for you didn't do these things. You see, these acts of hospitality don't earn us a spot in the kingdom of God. They are evidence that we are already, in fact, citizens of that kingdom. This vision of the final judgment does not undervalue grace. What it does is help us truly understand grace. Grace is not just a gift that we receive. Grace is a power that transforms our lives. Real grace always translates into love. This is what I think the central message of our passage is. When we stand before the throne of King Jesus, what finally matters is not what we think in our heads or believe in our hearts, even though those things are very important. What finally matters is whether the stuff in our heads and our hearts shapes what we do with our hands. Practical love is the measure of our faith. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 5, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Now, for those of us who tend to emphasize orthodoxy over orthopraxy, or right belief over right action, this should give us pause. I think if we're wise, we'll ask some questions. Does my life align with what matters most? Do I see evidence of my faith working through love in my life? So we should let this passage shake us up a little bit, but I also think we should let it reorient us. And so to end, I wanna spend some time helping us think through what we ought to do in response to this vision of the final judgment. The first thing I wanna say is that the warning of judgment here is very real. This is a real warning to each of us, but it's not meant to make us live in fear. As T.S. Eliot writes in one of his plays, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. If we leave here thinking, I need to go help a bunch of people so I can avoid hell, we're doing it wrong. Motivation matters. Jesus doesn't want us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to do the right thing for the wrong reason. He wants us to do the right thing for the right reason. He wants us to love people because we love people. He wants us to show love because we see people as worthy 
of that love. So the trick here is love, but of course love is tricky, right? As Lauren told us last week, you can't manufacture love. It's not something that we can generate ourselves. That's God's business. We can't create love, but what we can do is create the conditions for God's love to blossom in our lives. So what might that look like? Well, I'm not going to offer a five-step plan for how to avoid the fires of hell this morning, but what I am going to suggest are two practices that form a posture. Two practices that form a posture. So the first practice is the most important one. It's this. Accept as much of Christ's hospitality as he'll give you. And it's a lot. Receive Christ's hospitality. That's the first practice. Feast on God's love early and often and in every way that you possibly can. You see, the central principle of the Christian life is not do better, try harder. The central principle of the Christian life is the one who is forgiven much, loves much. The reality is we can't give that which we have not received. And so if we want to love people, we need to receive God's love. If we want to grow in our capacity to love, if we want to be people who love, the first practice is to feast on God's love early and often in prayer, in worship, in every way that we possibly can. So that's the first practice. And the second one is this. Schedule time into your lives to practice hospitality. Build it into your schedule. We live in this strange time where news and technology make it possible for us to be more aware of the suffering around the world than ever before. And at the same time, our wealth and the ways that we've structured our society and our lives make it possible for us to avoid as much of that suffering as we'd like. We might not live in a gated community, but many of us have put fences up around our lives so that we keep the wrong kind of people off of our lawns. And one way to resist this, one way to fight against this tendency, this temptation that we have, is to intentionally put ourselves in positions to love. Just like some of us regularly set out an extra plate at the dinner table expecting to maybe receive somebody, we are to plan into our schedule regular times where we're going to serve the lost and the last and the least. This is the heart behind the hospitality challenge that Father Jonathan issued a few weeks ago. And many of us already do this. Many of us have already woven times to serve into our schedules. But if we haven't, one of the ways that we can do this is to commit to one of the ministries at Ascension. You'll see in your yellow announcement uh, flyer, we have a list of opportunities uh, for us to do that, a list of local ways to engage. You can look at that uh, after the service. There's a lot of things here. Obviously, we can't do them all. So as you're trying to think, well, where should I get plugged in? Well, just think about which one of these things gets you most excited? Which injustice makes you most angry? Maybe you can decide where to serve based on where the greatest need is. Maybe you just pick one and commit. So those are the two practices. And I think 
When we incorporate these practices into our lives, what we're doing is we are opening ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit. When we do these two things, over time, God forms us into the kind of people who are postured towards love. We become people who love like we breathe, without thinking. Through these two practices, God attunes us to the needs of our neighbors. And when this happens, you'll quickly realize that you actually don't have to look very far or very hard for needs. The world is filled to overflowing with hungry and hurting people. As Henrietta Mears says, everyone is dying for a little drop of love. And God isn't calling us to solve the problems of mass incarceration or to solve the global refugee crisis. He's calling us to love when we have the opportunity to love. When the Lord brings someone to you in need, help them. We don't need a strategic plan for this. We don't need advanced degrees. We don't need to be super gifted. All we need is some love and some time and the willingness to make ourselves useful. Let's pray. King Jesus, my prayer for each of us is that your hospitable love would transform us into people who love to practice hospitality. My prayer is that we would become people whose lives bear witness to your love so that when each of us stands before you on the great and terrible day, there wouldn't be any surprises. Amen.